Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to talk about the Forge of Foes Kickstarter, which is going on right now. We're going to do a Kickstarter spotlight for the Shadow Dark RPG. I'm going to talk about an excellent resource called Open5e.com and how you may be able to help it out. And we're going to cover the questions from the February 2023 Patreon Q&A, all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish here to talk about all things in RPGs. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord server, to the City of Arches sourcebook, to Uncovered Secrets Volume 1 and 2, a bunch of exclusive adventures, the monthly Q&A, and all kinds of other stuff. You can become a patron by going down to the show notes below and clicking on the link and becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. One new thing that's happened to the Patreon is that we now have a $4 hero tier. If you want to be a hero of Sly Flourish, if you really find yourself using the stuff that I am offering and you want to give a little bit more, you can do so by becoming a hero of Sly Flourish on the Patreon to the heroes. Thank you in particular for your outstanding support. Forge of Foes is going on right now. The Forge of Foes Kickstarter is going on right now. It is going very, very well. We have 3,100 people, almost 3,200 people that have backed the Kickstarter for the Forge of Foes. This is a project that I'm working on with Scott Fitzgerald Gray on Teos Abadia, where we are giving you a book of guidance and tools and tips and tricks for creating and modifying and running monsters for your 5e RPGs. We are super excited about it. The response has been great. We, Because of the outstanding response we've had, we are already getting started with putting the book into a rudimentary layout so we can see where we need the art and then commissioning the art. So we're, we're moving forward to get this book built and get it in your hands. If you have not backed it, please go check it out in the show notes below. You can download a free 30-page sample PDF. This PDF is packed with all kinds of great stuff. I actually just used it when I was prepping for my game. You can see me actually using it. I'm going to have a video coming out a little later this week where I actually show the process of improvising a monster on the spot during a game using the tools that are in this free preview, not even in the main book. But if you like the stuff that's in the free preview please go check it out and please support the book. It means a whole lot and it's going to be an outstanding book. We couldn't be more excited about it. Another, Teo Sabadia did a great walkthrough video. You can find it in the Kickstarter. He did a great walkthrough video where he talks about the process of working on this book, where he talks about the things that are in it. Really great in-depth video. Check that video out. It's under the video section. Every time we new, do a new video where we're talking about it or showing off a new piece and we plan to do this all throughout the month, you can find it down in the video section and we will post updates as well. To those of you who have supported the Forge of Foes who have already backed it thank you so much for your support we cannot wait to get this book into your hands it's going to be so great another kickstarter that is doing very very well is the shadow dark rpg kickstarter this kickstarter done by the arcane library is an old school tabletop game that old school rpg old school kind of bx style D, &D game but built with new mechanics that we have seen evolve over the past 40 years. Ascending armor classes, ascending attack bonuses, a lot of the, the, a lot of quality of life changes that make running and playing, playing and playing and running an RPG so easy to run are embedded in this embedded in this RPG. So it's definitely built around the style of going into dungeons, finding treasure, worrying about the light of your torches, facing dangerous foes. But it's also very streamlined to make it fast and fun to run. It looks really, really cool. I backed it. At first I backed it and I was like, I'm just going to get the PDF. And then I'm like, you know, there's a whole lot of PDFs 
that they're offering in here. I'll go ahead and back all the PDFs. And now I'm pretty sure I am going to get the physical book itself and then all of the rest of the accessories in the PDF. That, that's kind of where I'm going. I'm going to do that when the, when, the, when the backer kit comes out. But it looks really cool. Black and white, old school line art by a bunch of different artists, including Matt Morrow, who did art for me for the Lazy DMs Companion. Really cool looking book. Very exciting. And so they have a free preview. It does take more than a click to get to the free preview. But you don't just get a preview. You get a, def- a full game ready to run. I'm going to show that now. I'm going to show you down the link. Really, I mean, this shows you everything that you have. Shows you how the basics of gameplay. And there's a few things. We're going we're gonna to take a look at a couple of the things that, that kind of grabbed my attention when I was looking through this. But definitely ch- you know, go check out the Kickstarter yourself and see it. Can you see a preview? Yes. You get a little bit more of a preview. I will say... It does not pass the Sly Flourish test of a single click and you get the preview, but it's really close and you get a lot of really good stuff. Instead, you can click here and you go to Drive Through RPG where you can get the player's quick start guide and the game master quick start guide, the, the quick start set for free from Drive Through RPG. That's pretty good. All of most everybody has a Drive Through RPG account. It's two or three clicks, but it's also not just, hey, here's 13 pages that show you what what this is about. It is 68 page, two different 68 page guides, one for game masters, one for players. That's really like the equivalent of what you would get in a box set. Definitely has that kind of old school feel to it. This is this is the player's guide. There's two. There's a player quick start guide and a GM quick start guide. And both show you that everything you need. They give you all of the material to be able to play your game to be able to to be able to play a full game i think it's four character classes up to 10th level kelsey dion is the designer of all this kelsey i had not really been familiar a lot of other people were familiar with arcane library i i wasn't until the ogl fiasco occurred and kelsey had done a video that got passed around among my circles of like check out this video of somebody and i'll tell you that like in a sea of darkness and instability and not you know just not knowing where things were going to go and feeling really down about this hobby her video talking about how she was taking her rpg forward regardless of what was going on and how she was just gonna she was gonna fight on and that nothing was gonna stop her from creating this thing that she had made was really really inspiring and you know i've been in this industry for a while and i needed that inspiration i needed somebody to really just say you know F it. We're just going to keep going. We're going to keep making stuff. And I, I shared that video a lot. I really found it inspirational. And then I went to the Arcane Library and started buying up all of her PDFs because I was like, this is really good stuff. And I bought, she thinks she had a package deal of a big ton of PDFs. I haven't even had a chance to really dig through them. I've heard they are fantastic adventures that are written. And she talks about this, that they're written very much to be GM friendly adventures. And I presume like, you know, a lot of the work that she's going to put in a Shadow Dark very much fits that support. So you have all, you have different classes, fighter priest thief and wizard i think they go up to 10th level in the sample this is just the sample this isn't the main the main book that's coming out lots of use of random tables so if you're familiar with like a lot of the random table use that you see with things like raging swan or old school essentials you'll see a very similar a very similar style style for this different ancestries dwarf goblin elf halfling uh human half orc and what you get with that and i think the level ranges yeah level ranges go up to 10 there's this interesting thing called talents that at certain levels, instead of getting like a feat or a new feature like that, you roll on a list to get a talent. 
and you don't know what you're going to get. So your character is growing in the description describes them, but all of them are awesome, but you don't know exactly which way your character is going to go. So it's a very interesting sort of random way of watching your character grow in a certain way, instead of doing all the, the character optimization, like pick all the ideal things. I think that's a really neat idea. I don't know how it plays out. I haven't, I haven't run it myself to see how it plays out, but, but it looks really cool. Vancian style spell casting. So all of the stuff that you want to have in to, to describe how to, for a player, and it's so, it is nothing. So you can, you can send this PDF to your players, or you can send them to the dollars that were the zero, so they can go add it to their their uh, drive through RPG library, and they can take a look at everything they need to be able to play it if you want to run it. So if this style of play, the kind of old school dungeon delving, you know, burning torches, torches running out. A couple. One of the features of the game is that nobody can see in the dark, and your torchlight is based on actual in-game worlds so your torchlight is running out while the game is being played not by an in-game timer that's one interesting feature to it so if you want that sort of real old school style of like the the, the equipment that you're carrying and the torches burning out is a big effect on what could happen to you in this game and in the world then this definitely fits that style another interesting thing that it has it uses an abstract distance system i love abstract distances rather than fixed square distances i think it's just much faster and much more fun and much more focused on the action so they definitely use abstract distances for this which i which i really like the other thing is that you're always in initiative order you're sort of always in a turn order and during your turn you can move and take an action it doesn't matter whether you're exploring it doesn't matter whether you're in combat i presume it doesn't matter even if you're in role playing you still kind of go around the table and the initiative is around the table you pick somebody and you go around the table it's not you don't have an initiative order that you're rolling and stacking up at different things it's always going around the table i use that often as for speed in my own DD games and i think that that really works so the of the previews 68 pages one for the player and then one for the game master the game master has all kinds of tables tips and tricks for getting a game up and running it also has a big pile of monsters and it includes an adventure so you can take a look at like what a what a monster stat block looks like ac 14 hit points 34 two attacks great axe plus six 1d10 and horns plus 1d6 1d12 hit points are very low damage is also very low so instead of having all the damage and hit points scaling up all the time monsters always stay dangerous and at low levels you can even face more dangerous monsters because they won't necessarily kill you all in one place so you know very very abbreviated stat blocks which i think is very cool kind of leads towards this the speed of this game so if you are digging an old school style adventure old school style rpg system i would definitely check out the shadow dark rpg it's making a lot of press making a you know a lot of people are paying a lot of attention to it looks really cool a lot of different options if you want to get in you want to just get in for the pdf you can do so if you want to just to check out the free preview that i showed check out the free preview see if it's the kind of game that you'd be interested in then see if you're going to back it looks really good i'm excited to get the physical version of the book i'm excited to get all the all the pdfs when they're ready my understanding is that all of them are written and have already been through all the layouts so that at the end of the campaign the digital versions of these will be released you don't it's not going to be a year before all of the stuff is released that once you back the kickstarter once the kickstarter fulfills you will get access to the books right away so that is very cool it's very you're you're going to be able to to grab this play it look at it 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 looks really it looks really good so check out the shadow dark rpg it looks really neat i became aware of a tool 
uh, a few months, I guess a month ago or so. Apparently, people in my Discord server have been banging me over the head with it, and I had not been paying attention. But I actually noticed that Cobalt Press was was describing it in their book, saying if you want to find monster stat blocks, I think it was Empire of the Ghoul says, if you want to find the monster stat blocks that you can't find in your normal monster book, and you don't have the monster's compendium, or you don't have the Tome of Beast or anything, go find it in Open 5e. And I was like, that's really interesting. What's Open 5e about? And then I started using it. I'm like, oh my god, this site is really, really useful. And if you're a nerd, it it is really useful, and I'm going to show you why. So Open5e is a very lightweight website. It has no advertisement on it, and it has all kinds. It has basically all of the material available under the 5e SRD. It was a little touch and go there during the OGL thing, but now that the OGL is not being touched, all of the material that's still there is continuing to be there. But not only does it include information from the 5e SRD, but from monsters, and I think from spells, I don't know about magic items, it also includes material that Cobalt Press has released under the OGL as well. So for example, you can go to, to your monsters and you can, it's loading, and you can say Darkhole. And you can get all the Darakul monsters in here, Darakul Spy. You click it and you get the stat blocks for it. So it gives you nice, clean stat blocks for any of the monsters that you want. A really good thing to list. It does not have Strahd. Somebody said, does it have Strahd? Strahd stat block is not available. But it does have like a Balor. So you can pull up the Balor. So any of the sources that got. And right now it has Toma Beast 1, Toma Beast 2, Creature Codex, and the 5e SRD. So fair, a fair bit of stuff. And I was really enamored with this. But here's where the nerd part comes in. Not only are all the monsters available so that you can just go and search and link, and you could link it in your troll, you, you could link it right into your into your your notes if you want to do that. You could look it up on the fly, all perfectly free, all open, anything that's under the OGL. Same with spells. If you're like, oh, you know, I forget how Tiny Hut, you know, how Tiny Hut works. You can click on Tiny Hut and you can pull up the the, the spell for Tiny Hut. Really easy. Everything in here is also available through a programmatic API, which means if you want to use it in some other tool, if you want to access the data or draw in the data or manipulate the data in some other way, you can hit their live API and they have all of these API calls and you can say, I want, for example, the monsters. You can not only pull the monster back in a nice HTML form that you can look at, you can also pull the entire monster stats in JSON. JSON, JavaScript Object Notation, is a way to transfer programmatic data from one system to another, which means that this allows somebody, like some nerd, to go and fetch all the monsters and then use them in another tool. And an example of the tool I'm using it in and I pulled from is the 5e Artisanal Monster Database, which I added to Notion, which means that in Notion, I have a database in here where I pulled the data from Open5e, and I can do my Darakul, my ghoul Darakul, and I can open it up and I've got the stat block because I was able to pull it from Open5e. Fantastic resource. The idea that we're able to not only share monsters through the OGL from people like Cobalt Press who published them under the OGL to tools like Open5e, but then Open5e can act as a gateway to other tools that other people can offer and show them off. This is all open un under Open5e. Here's how you can help. So Open5e, it's run by one, one guy, one, one dude. I had the opportunity to talk to him on Discord. I was like, what's going on? And it was, the site was touch and go about whether or not he was going to keep it up and going, particularly with the OGL thing and whether or not it's even legal to do so. Is he, was he at significant legal risk for keeping this up if the OGL was in fact deauthorized, being an online tool like this, one that clearly sort of has an overlap with the stuff that you find in D&D Beyond. So was he in, was he in danger? And... 
Luckily, that OGL thing kind of went away, but he's still one guy working a full-time job who's really too busy to keep the site up and running as much as he would like. So I asked him, what, what, what can you do to help? What can people do to help? He's not really looking for money. So he's not, you know, he's not non-commercial dude, doesn't want to put ads on the site. So he's not, and, and money's not really the problem as we, many people have found out when you're going to get into these hobbies. Time is the problem. Time and energy is the problem. In particular, what he needs is some, he needs people who have the programmatic experience to be able to work with the site, make modifications, do updates in GitHub. He's got a whole GitHub repo where he manages this, send updates to GitHub so that he can look at them and decide whether or not to bring them into the main fold. And the best place to kind of contact him and talk to him and talk to other people is through the Open 5e Discord server. So if you are a very enterprising uh, software engineer who knows Python, knows Django, knows how to work with JSON files and understands Vue.js and is willing to help him out with this, join the Open5e Discord server. I will put a link to the Open5e Discord server below. You can talk to other members of Open5e. You can reach out. Ian is, is the name. You can reach out to Ian himself. Ian, I think it's Ian Moody is his name. You reach out to him, talk to him about it, ask him, you know, talk about what kind of things that he might need in order to help and help him out. Open5e, fantastic website. I hope we can keep it up. I myself put a lot of energy over the past few days converting Monstrous Menagerie and Toma Beast 3 into the format that Open5e is taking. So I'm hoping that I'm, I'm not a super GitHub connected guy, so I wasn't able to do a push request or anything like that because I don't know how to do that sort of stuff. But I was able to say, hey, Ian, here, I, I was able to test it and check it and make sure that it validates. And here are two data sets, two additional data sets, Monstrous Menagerie and Toma Beast 3 that you might want to add to the monster list so that people could then access all those monsters as well so if you want to help him out join the discord server talk to the other members of open 5e maybe reach out to ian and offer what support you're able to support contributing to github i bet is probably the best way to kind of help him with any new things that you've got but would would be really good open 5e fantastic resource i hope it stays online it's really really good really really useful i hope not only does it stay up i hope it extends out i hope we start to see when new books come out like black flags monster book i heard kobold press is is going back and tweaking the monsters in Toma Beast 1. I hope that there's a way to take the monsters from there and bring them back into an open platform like this where people can programmatically use them for tools all across the internet. I think that's really, really powerful. So check out Open5e. If you are a software engineer and want to help out, check out the Discord server, pop in there and offer, offer up what help you can. Really, really good resource. So now let's do some Patreon questions. Members of the Sly Flourish Patreon are able to post any question that they want that's related to RPGs. I answer all of them on Patreon. Some of them I bring here on the show. Other ones I will turn into an article or a full video as well. Tim S. says, how do you run dungeon crawls? I'll draw up or print out or even build maps with terrain, and that works great for the combat encounters, but seems clunky for the actual exploration of a dungeon. Is it better to run them more theater of the mind and switch to the battle map during combat? Or is it better to have the full map and let players move their minis around until they trigger a trap or a fight? Or something else I'm not considering. So Tim, maps, I, I don't know if you remember, or if other people remember, when I switched back from online exclusive online play to playing games in person 
I was lost about what to do about maps. And I'm like, I've been playing for like 30 years and I forgot how difficult it is to manage maps at the table. That when you're at a physical table, map management is just weird. There's not a great solution. I actually did some research asking like, what kind of solutions do you use for maps? And what I found is there wasn't any one clear winner that lots of people do different things. Some people use a monitor or either a large scale monitor or some kind of digital display to show a map. Other people just draw it out on either a wet erase or dry erase mat. I really found that drawing a map out on big sheets of gridded paper can work pretty well for sharing a map. But another trick is you can just sort of print maps on, on regular format paper and use the little handout version of the map to kind of show people roughly where they are on a situation. So it's very dependent. The whole thing about how to manage maps is very dependent on whether or not you are, whether you're playing in person or whether you're playing online. If you're playing online, I think, you know, something like Albert Rodeo, throw the whole map that you're exploring in Albert Rodeo and use the Fog of War. You don't have to put all the tokens on it and you don't have to people move piece by piece. You can use one generic icon. There's like a little map, like a little compass rose icon that they have in Albert Rodeo. And you can just say the compass rose is, is my focus better? You can just say that the compass rose is a is, represents everybody and you kind of move them around the map. I do like using Fog of War and some kind of visual display for the exploration of a map because theater of the mind is it's really hard to describe all of the passageways, all of the elevation changes, all of the possible entrances and exits, and for anybody to keep in their mind how this map is connected without a visual. So using some kind of visual, it works really well. You could take a bunch of printouts, for example, and use printouts for each major section of the dungeon and then place them out so they can see how they all connect up. You could use a large format and then use like either pieces of construction paper or use like a cut up t-shirt to, to kind of explore the area. But having some kind of visual for a map I think is really is really important so Tim I hope that it's a really hard problem it's something I want to do a deeper exploration on it's something I had started and I haven't really gone back to because I want to try to find better solutions for how to handle maps because it's a big part of the game and it's hard to do great question Elliot B says due to recent events I'll be GMing my first game of Pathfinder 2 soon what advice do you have from the multiple systems you've run to prepare players for different experiences and to get rid of preconceived expectations they have from 5e JC also asked a very similar question with many D&D players looking at other systems what tips do you have for learning a new system or test driving a new system so I'm going to answer both of these I'm going to answer both of these questions together one my number one trick is to bring your players into the process of learning the new system. So instead of it being the idea that you as the GM, that you learn the system and you teach the players, instead, all of you are together and you're all learning the system. When I was running Blades in the Dark, uh, that's exactly what I did. I got everybody a copy of Blades in the Dark and I, because it had a, an open version, a Creative Commons version that they could read. And I asked them to study the system too. And some players are going to be more interested in studying the system than others, but you can rely on those players who are really interested in digging in they can help you out a lot. They can help teach you some of the rules that you might not be remembering. That's true in any system. If you bring, if you go to a new game world, the more your players know about the game world and read up on the game world, they can, they can talk to you about the things that you might not have picked up. So be, work with the players to learn a system is probably number one. Two is I would not spend a lot of time on the rules. I would try to get into the game as much as soon as possible, R reminding the players that there are certain times where you're going to run into things where the players are going to get confused about one system over the other. Like when do you take opportunity attacks is different between Pathfinder 2, I think, and 5e. 
And so you might say like, you're going to, we're going to run into times like this. And it's important to remember that we, we're going to try to pay attention to the rules of the system we're learning. So like, you know, but, but then we'll, we'll roll back. So that example of the opportunity attack, if someone provokes an opportunity attack by like casting a spell or drinking a potion or whatever triggers an opportunity attack in Pathfinder 2 that doesn't in 5e, if you say, oh, you're going to take an opportunity attack, give them the chance to say, well, then I don't want to do that. And you go, yeah, perfectly fine. We're all learning the rules. So learn, learn the rules together, be on the player's side, have them help you with the rules, like give them the opportunity to learn the rules with you so that all of you together can play the game. It's not that dissimilar to like if you went and you bought a board game and none of you know how to play, you're all going to learn how to play the board game together. It's just in an RPG, one person has a different role than the others, but you don't have to be the one to teach them everything. Lean on them to learn the game with you so that you can all learn it together. That's my number one, my number one tip for all of that. Jamie G says, I'm wondering if you have any advice on how to take better notes while running the game as a GM. I find that when I'm playing, I take impeccably detailed notes, but almost none of while running my games. I wind up relying on players for details with questionable reliability. I suck at taking notes too. I don't know many GMs that are really good at taking notes. We're very busy. We've got lots of things going on. We're, we're, you know, we're wondering why we only have one boar miniature when we need two. There's so many different little aspects of the game that we're paying attention to. It's really hard to take notes. There's one thing that's probably really important to take notes on, and that's NPCs when they show up. Write down the names of things. Write down the names of people. Keep some notes, Keep any some kind of thing to take notes and actively remember to take the names of people. And maybe it's me. Maybe other people are better at remembering names. I just suck remembering names. And I'll make an NPC and I'll make a name and I'll make a mannerism and I forget. And then I'm like, what was that person called? And now we, the NPC is still important, but none of us remember their name. So to me, that's probably the number one thing to take notes on our names. Now, relying on your players to help take notes is really important too. And I think it's very important during a session zero and, and often to remind your players to ask them to take notes instead of just saying like you may want to take notes like ask them if you would please take notes on the game a it'll help me remember where the game goes and i'm not able to really handle it all while i'm running it and b it'll keep you guys engaged with everything and keep you guys working together to stay engaged with everything that's going on in the game so as a player taking notes is really really valuable and that can be useful to the dm even with the question of reliability, when, when you are able to either look at their notes or they describe what they, what they did in the last session, you'll remember where the discrepancies are. You can either correct them at the moment or you can just keep in mind that that isn't exactly the way they saw it. So the unreliable narrator problem isn't really that big a deal because you're going to remember what was different. You're not going to lose track of that. So the big one is write down the names yourself and ask your players to take notes and, and rely on those players. Those, those have been the things that have helped me. And I just, I haven't gotten good at taking notes otherwise. Now, one thing a lot of DMs do recommend, a lot of GMs I've heard recommend is after the game is done, just take five minutes to jot down the things that happened, big, you know, just bullet points. What are the big things that happened? And particularly, where did it end? And what decisions, what decisions were chosen by the characters near the end of the game? I think that that can be really valuable as well. So Jamie, hope that, hope that helps. Andrew says, as a GM, how much do you influence party balance? during a session zero will you offer feedback if you feel the party might have difficulty with combat or other aspects of the adventure or will you let the players decide and just adjust the adventure as you go i think it's definitely there, there are certain things where i think it's important for the gm to make it clear to the players what discrepancies they might have do you have a healer do you have somebody who can cast like healing word or some kind of healing spell to keep other people up if they happen to drop to zero you probably want some kind of healer do you have some kind of frontline person do you have some kind of frontline tank? It could be a paladin fighter. It could be any kind of character, even if it's a moon druid, moon druid, you know, shapeshifter. Who's going to be up there in the front? 
I've played games where no one's up in the front and everyone, it's like, it's like fighting TIE fighters. They're just zipping all over the place. You can do it, but it's really not fun to have everybody running around, you know, throwing everybody else in front of the monsters because they don't want to take any damage. So you generally want somebody who's excited to take damage. So high armor class, high hit point, high resistance sort of characters. And then you want a healer. Then the other thing to balance, to, to make sure that people are clear on is, do they have a good spread of skills? Do, is the skill training spread wide enough that when they run into a skill, different characters will have different skills? One thing that really helps with all of these things is during the, is having the players build their characters together during a session zero. I talk about session zeros all the time and about the importance of session zeros. And many, many times the questions that we get are many, many times the questions that, we, that, I, that I receive here, the answer is we'll cover it in your session zero. This is kind of one of them that if they build their characters together, they'll see those discrepancies and you can guide it and be like, well, who do you think your frontline tank is going to be? Who do you think your healer is going to be? And let's talk about skills. Like who's got training in what skills? Oh, I have training in Arcana. Oh, so do I. Oh, so do I. Well, maybe one of you guys wants to switch over to religion or maybe once you wants to switch over to history or some of the other skills, like spread, make sure that they're spreading the skill training around in one way, you that way they each have something that they're good at that other people aren't good at. And B, they can cover more ground when they have different characters that have different skills to make different skill checks during the game, different ability checks during the game. So those are the things that I would worry about when I'm looking at, at, at party balance. Matt G says, is it wrong if I do not allow the variant human and custom lineage at my gaming? I started a new 5e campaign up last year and those were the only two race options I did not allow. I gave every race a free level one feat instead to make up for it and didn't want the option of people to pick two free feats at level one. It sounds like you don't like one D&D where I think you get three feats at level one. I don't know. I can't remember how many feats they give you at level one. I think like the less popular of the game is they'll just give you more feats. I gave every race a free feat at level one to make up for it. And I didn't want the option of people picking two. I'm not trying to run that kind of mid-maxing power game. One of my friends who isn't in my gaming group argued with me that I was forcing diversity in the game, forcing diversity in the game, a lack of diversity, maybe, in the game by not allowing these options that I took player agency away by doing so. Was I wrong not to allow those two racial options? Or is my friend talking out of his butt? The answer is he's talking out of his butt. First of all, he's not in your group. So, you know, it's, it's worth us. This is where I really love this hobby that we can learn from and share experiences among thousands and thousands of other game masters. And we can learn all kinds of things and listen to people's advice and, and listen to what people's opinions are. And then think about how it matters to us and matters to our group. But then when we go to our table, our table's our own and we can do whatever we want. So if your players are fine with your choices, then you're fine. It doesn't matter. You know, like it, it sounds like the, the friend might say, I, would, I wouldn't be fine with it if I was in the game. But if it's not your players and your players like, no, it's cool, then it's good. Now, the, the question of not offering custom lineage or variant human, one thing is you could offer those two things and just not give them an extra feat. Say, well, you already get a feat. So you can take that option, but you only get the one feat. You don't get two. And then if they're really interested, they'll go ahead and take that because it's just, it's a slight difference. It's not a major difference. It's basically the difference that one of the other species would have that they wouldn't, but it's a minor thing. So just, you know, you can still offer it up. I don't think it's, you're like, you're, you're ruining their abilities because like for, I don't know, 35 years, you, you would pick like a human. And there's so much variance in each of the species where players can customize who, they're, who they are, where they came from, their traits and aspects of the world. There's so many ways to customize every one of those species you're not really limiting things by removing the one where people can make one up completely really it comes down to like are you you know is it somebody that's interested in gaming the mechanics 
And if they're not interested in gaming the mechanics, they would be perfectly fine taking the variant human or the custom lineage and recognizing they only get one feet, even though everyone else also gets one feet. So I don't think it's a big deal. But but the main the, 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 that, that's one thing I want to offer. The other thing I want to offer is you're free to ignore any advice that you pick up from people that aren't in your game. Now, advice from the players in your game, maybe want to listen to more because it's their time. They're actually spending time running the game. Prodigal Ooze says, how do you re- accommodate players who have very specific ideas about their characters and aren't willing to deviate? One of my Icewind Dale players wants to be a barbarian who has a warlock patron-like relationship with an ancestral or beast spirit. Official path TBD. She wants to have frequent conversations with this spirit and have it share meta-knowledge about the world. She also wants it to be a prominent part of her character development. While I think having a genie in a bottle spirit and voice in your head is interesting, and there are elements of the adventure that I can message massage to fit, having a constant to constantly remember to talk to her as a spirit is not fun for me and makes me feel pigeonholed creatively because she has both such a fixed idea about what this relationship should be. Is there a way we can both have fun? It's a little tough. It sounds like there's a couple of different things going on here. And and I think one is not so much about the specifics of her having a patron that she can talk to, because that can be a really, really valuable GM tool. It's the reason that I love intelligent magic items. Intelligent magic items are a fantastic way for you to be able to reveal secrets and clues and histories and ideas and hints and tricks and paths and directions it's a great way for you to basically speak to the characters directly it's like the intelligent magic item is an antenna to the gm to the character which is a really powerful tool and having something like this where you have a character who has a spirit and a spirit guide is similar to that but that doesn't sound like the issue that you're having it's possible so there's a couple different possible things going on here one is that you could have a player who's looking for more spotlight than other players are able to, than you're able to offer. It depends on how many other players you have. But one question is, is this player taking up more time at the table than other players are? And I've definitely had that circumstance where people are so into their characters and so into what's going on. What they're doing is they're kind of dominating the time at the table. And that's something that needs to be concerned. They have to remember, and it might take a conversation. All of these are going to take an adult conversation out of the game one-on-one. So that's one of them. You're going to have to have a one-on-one conversation to kind of bring these things up and, and, and discuss these points. And not it's not accusing them. You're not yelling at them, but you're definitely need to have that adult conversation with them about this. And one of them is, are they taking up too much time? Hey, I have five other players who also have their stories and I need to be paying attention to them too. I'm not going to be able to speak to you with a spirit guide. So probably the spirit guide is going to be silent a lot of the time. And, and you know, you that's, it's the kind of the way it has to be. I really can't run the game any other way. It's too much. So that, that could be one is spotlight time. Then another one is when a player is more involved in the story of the game than the GM is. I've run into this circumstance too, where some, some players really are so excited about the game and the story and their character and things are going on. And they're just plain more interested and more invested than the GM who's just trying to run the game. That's another adult conversation of, of, and I've had to have this conversation of, I'm really not going to be able to give you the range of the story that you're really hoping to receive. This is something I learned that like, I run a very loosey goosey game that's character driven and sort of story driven by what happens but it's not this a super tightly knit woven fabric of a fantastic epic journey 
I, I'm not able to keep up with that. I'm not, I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't, I don't, my mental capacity is not such that I can run a super tight line game where like every one of the connections to the characters is interwoven with the stories. And this is where I think a little bit of the, I don't, I don't like to say like the, the, the critical role effect, right? But people like to talk about the critical role effect, but there is a little bit of the critical role effect that might be a, a case here where somebody is watching a show like that, where they see the depth of characters and the, the connections between characters and the players and characters, the players and GMs. And you can just kind of say, hey, I'm really not able to keep up with that. Right. I, I can't, I can't keep, like, I don't run a, my, I myself, Mike Shea does not run a game like that. So that, but again, it's going to have to be adult conversations to manage the expectations of the game. This is the kind of game that I'm able to run. This is what I'm able to do with your character. So I don't know if that was, I'm bringing up a bunch of different things that could be the case in here. Reality is, and it's hard. And it's one of the hard parts of DMing is having adult conversations out of game, out of character with a player to address and say, you say what you say there. Like, look, this is really not, I, I, I can't have fun with the game if I'm also worried about this all the time. I'm hoping that there's a way that we can do it. And one of them could be the spirit guide animal, just a lot of time does not answer. It's not there, right? And, and, and then sometimes they'll come up. And then it could be that if you find the right balance of when to bring that spirit guide in and when not to, that you can use it as this antenna between you and the characters, which is a really powerful connection, can be really useful. Jep says, I'm running Empire of the Ghouls at the moment, and I'm overwhelmed by the amount of lore Midgard has to offer. How do you get into a whole new world like Midgard? Yes. So first of all, Empire of the Ghouls. I just did like my chapter two retrospective on Empire of the Ghoul, Empire of the Ghouls. It's about food, about nasty food. Empire of the Ghouls. And Empire of the Ghouls is really written to be a showcase of Midgard. So of the campaign adventures you're running, that one more than most are really going to push you to learn about the world and to show that world to the players because you travel thousands and thousands of miles from the far north to the far south in this game, including going through the Shadow Roads and learning everything about the Shadow Realm. It's a, it's a demanding adventure to show off the world. So how do you do it? Well, the nice thing is the adventure doesn't move so fast that you can't keep up with sort of reading and rendering these parts of the world as the characters explore. The example is chapter one is all set in Zobek. There's a great book, Zobek Clockwork City, which just came out, which is a great big source book about Zobek. And if you really want to dive in, I'm, one thing about Empire of the Ghouls is for both good and bad, it uses a ton of other Midgard books, a ton of other Kobold Press books that you can tie into this, including Mid Zobek, including Southlands. There's a lot of different books, including Book of Ebon Tides, so you can kind of decide how much or how little you want to dive into like other source books. Really, I would say that you will get the most out of Empire of the Ghouls if you partner it with the Midgard World Book. And I don't think you need more than the Midgard World Book unless you want to. And if you want to, then you can expand even further by picking up books like the Zobek Clockwork City, by picking up the Southlands book, by picking up uh, these other books that, that cover other regions that the adventure covers. But then you really only have to focus on the area that the characters are in now. And then as they get closer to it, then you jump and learn about the next one. So the example is, if they're in Zobek, you really have to worry about Zobek. And there's Zobek and the crossroads, right? Like think about them and then think about one horizon out. What's just outside the horizon of view? What else is going on there? So learn about Zobek, learn about the, 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 the family, the terrible family that ruled over Zobek. What's the history there? But focus on that. Then when the characters start to head north into Dwarven Cantons, then go and read that part of the Midgard World book. Take notes, 
make secrets and clues, figure out the things you want the characters to learn as they go, read about the city descriptions that they might run into along the way, like look at the route they're going to take, look at the towns and cities they're going to hit, read about those, and then think about an encounter that can show off something that happened in that region or city. That was something I did that I really liked. There was a, there's a city, there's a little town where the villagers there, the religious folk there believe that Rava, the clockwork goddess, and Volund, the dwarven god, god of crafting, are married. There's a marriage between them. And that's considered heretical among dwarves. Well, instead of just describing that, it's really fun if the character, like what I did is I had an encounter where the characters found a dwarf merchant and his mercenaries harassing this a priest because the priest wished them, he said, may the, may the marriage of Rava and Volund bless you. And he's like, how dare you? And he's hitting him with a horse whip and mercenaries strike him. And he's like, what? And he's like, they're not married. He goes, oh yeah, they are. No, beat him more thoroughly. Strike him, you know, toss him down again, right? Pick him up and throw him back down. So, and then the characters have to get involved. And the great thing was like, <laughs> they would talk to the priest and the priest is like, what? Just, I just w wanted to bless them between the marriage, the holy marriage between Rava and Valoon. And then the priest is like, yeah, the, the dwarf is mad. Like, you, yeah. And, and it was this really fun encounter where the characters had to de-escalate the situation and they were both a annoyed at the priest for constantly bringing up the marriage of Rava and Valund and the dwarf who's clearly just overreacting about wanting to beat the priest and maybe even have his mercenaries kill him because of this sacrilegious statement that he's making. So finding ways to show what's going on at a location when you have like the kobold miners who are now free and they're still mining but they get trapped in a mine and the, the character is going to help them they can learn more about the cultures that are going on in these regions but and it, all you're doing is reading a paragraph in the midgard world book so it takes it, it you know the, the main thing is like you know it takes a lot the way one way to be not overwhelmed is only focus on the areas that you know the character is going to go to that's that sort of spiral development and to focus on the midgard world book particularly even if you want to add the other stuff in you can but focus on the Midgard world book because it has a lot to offer. But yeah, I really love Midgard and my players really love it. I have two groups now that are both playing in Midgard and we're all really excited about it. And I'm learning more and I'm feeling more proficient. I'm knowing more of the lore. And but it's probably by the end of Empire of the Ghouls is when I'm going to be like, wow, I feel really good about this. And then I'm not going to run another campaign in Midgard. I might not say never, but probably not right away. Mark L says, how do you deal with shopping sessions and giving items that the players want? I don't want to look through hundreds of items available to decide what are good items for the players because I do this. If I do this, the players will feel they need to do these long shopping sessions every time we enter a town or city. I personally di dislike spending a session having players ask me to do this, this or that, and have spending another 20 minutes to try to figure out that they can't afford a plus three suit of armor. So a couple ways that you can handle it. I'm not a big fan of shopping sessions either. One thing I like to do is say, in this city, you can pick up any of the gear that you find in the adventuring gear that is under 50 gold pieces or under 100 gold pieces. If you're running kind of a straightforward 5e game where the magic, you know, of a normal magic level, generally speaking, they cannot go to a place and find an entire array of magic items. Even in like Waterdeep, there wouldn't be that many magic items for sale. And, and it's, you know, you can kind of gamify it and basically say like searching through the city, you only find the following three items for sale. And then, and then you get to kind of how you handle treasure. And there's sort of two interlinked ways that you can handle treasure. One is you ask your players what kinds of items they might be interested in and you build a wish list from that so you know the kinds of things they're interested in not specifically so don't ask them for like a particular wand like the oh i want a wand of web ask them like you know if they say wands then you say okay you know wands is a good a good thing so 
Get, ask for general kinds of items. Don't ask for specifics. Ask for general. I want heavy armor and I, I like great swords. Okay. Well, you don't talk about what kind of great sword. Then you can also roll randomly. And there's lots of different ways to roll randomly. There are random tools and many, many different tools online where you can roll mag random magic items. You can also pick the random magic item tables from the Dungeon Master's Guide. You can pick up the Vault of Magic by Cobalt Press has all the 5e SRD plus all of their things. Lots of ways that you can roll. And what you can do is you can say that in any given town, there are only three random magic items for sale. And you'll have to kind of pick the pricing. You know, you kind of ask yourself, like, how much do I think this is this is worth? And, you, you know, it depends. But I, I probably wouldn't put magic items for sale that are above the uncommon. You know, that magic items have sort of scale. Uncommon, rare, very rare, and legendary. Pretty much only uncommon magic items would ever be for sale. Because they're like exponentially harder to get. And uncommon is already really hard. So the likelihood of finding a rare magic item for sale, not very likely. But an uncommon magic item might be for sale. But they're only going to find like three. And you can just roll those three randomly. And those are the ones that are available. And the players can decide if they're going to pick them up or not. But you don't have to come up with a whole thing. There are some downtime rules in Xanathar's for how the characters can try to cultivate a relationship with a broker to find magic items. That's kind of fun to do. You can try it and see if it's up for your, up for your players. But yeah... You know, it can get kind of boring. And one thing you can do, again, is pause for a minute, break character, talk to the players and say, I don't want to spend, you know, it's not really fun for me and I'm not really prepared to spend a lot of time for you. You got to spend a lot of time shopping. Instead, we're going to abstract that. You go to the town. These are the things for sale. You can buy them or not. So having that conversation is there. But yeah, rather than you having to look through a lot of items, randomly generating items is really good. And again, you can use random generators. Lazy DM's companion has this. My Lazy DM random generator that's available to patrons has this, where you can associate an item with like interesting effects, interesting origins, and interesting like other weird magical effects that it has. So no magic item is just like a plus one longsword. It's like, no, it's a, a dark elven plus one longsword with a blade that gleams of black and silver that also cast the spell darkness once per day, right? I really love to, to make magic items like that. It makes every one of them unique. It's really, really fun. And you can do it just by rolling a few random tables rather than having to go through piles of source books. So the solution, once again, is one of my books, Lazy DM's Companion, has a whole treasure, one-page treasure guide that offers ways to generate really interesting treasure for your game and tie it to origins and weird effects and spell effects that might be on it and, and things like that. So it's really, it's really pretty neat. Bernie says, through our gameplay, my group of players has considerable amount of magic items. Hey, look, another magic item thing. Add, to, add this to their current level, nine, and I find myself struggling to balance combats and to find the right foe for them. Does the Deadly Encounter benchmark account for magic items? If not, what other methods can I use when designing an encounter for a well-equipped team? The, magic, the, the, the Lazy DM benchmark kind of doesn't include magic items. It does scale a little higher than the hard ratings that you would find in like the Dungeon Master's Guide. So in that sense, like it's expecting characters are a little tougher. One thing is that all the encounter balance guidelines that are based on the DMG math, the ones in Xanathar's Guide, the tools on D&D on, on Beyond, they all break down because they don't even expect you to have feats, right? They don't expect multi-classing, they don't expect feats, and they don't expect magic items. And all of those three things are significantly higher in power. Like when characters that have them are significantly higher in power than they normally are. So none of those work particularly well. 
which means the, the deadly encounter benchmark, the lazy encounter benchmark is goes a little higher than that, right? That idea of the, the sum total of character levels divided by either four or two. If the sum total of monster challenge ratings is greater than the sum total of monster character, or character levels divided by either four, if they're below level five or two, if they're fifth level or above, could be potentially deadly. That is already a little harder than hard to kind of account for that a little bit. But sometimes your character is even more powerful. There's a really good synergy between them. They, they, they balance really well. There's particular magic items they have that make them very powerful. There's a lot of them. There are other things that might scope up their power even more. The way to scale up the encounter benchmark that's easiest to do is pretend they have one character more than they do. Maybe even two characters more than they do. So if you have five level nine characters, normally your CR benchmark, the, the benchmark for five level nines, five times nine is 45, 45 divided by two is 22, would normally be 22. Instead, you pretend there's one extra. Now it's 54 instead of 45 divided by two. 54 divided by 22 is 27. Yeah, 27. So you're going from 20, a maximum challenge rating of 22 to a maximum challenge rating of 27 being on the threshold. And you do that just by adding one monster. I talked about like, in pretending they're one level higher, I don't think that works as well. I think it's the benchmark scales better when you pretend there are more characters. So just keep adding more characters until you get to the point where like, yeah, these are deadly. These are deadly fights. And that should that should generally work. So whenever you find, if you find like, again, if you have a moon druid in your group and the moon druid is just twice as powerful as everybody else or a monk with stunning strike who's really, really good at stunning monsters, just pretend they're one character more. Pretend there's one extra character than there are. And that, boom, it keeps, they'll, they'll keep notching the, the, the damage up. And the nice thing about adding characters instead of adding levels is you don't have these weird jumps when you cross over four to five or 10 to 11 or 16 to 17 and stuff like that. Bernie, I hope that helps. McCracken Peace says, how would you adapt the eight steps of the Lazy DM to a Call of Cthulhu Delta Green game? If it helps you answer, I'm using the gumshoe system. You've done a good job making the steps system neutral, but admit that they work best for fantasy RPGs. I've identified the key differences. One, less combat. Two, adventures are driven by mystery. Three, setting is the real world, but supernatural locales enemy can appear. So do you have any tips for adjusting the method to better fit that style of game? I, I, if I have ever said that it's focused on fantasy RPGs, I'm not accurate in that. It works with lots of RPGs of many, many different types. There's only a few RPGs where it really doesn't work. I didn't find it worked considerably well for Blades in the Dark, for example, because of the improv nature of Blades in the Dark. It meant you really couldn't plan things out the same way that I was used to planning them. But almost every other role-playing game I've played, the eight steps still work. Now, there's slight modifications that you might make to some of these eight steps. I'm not familiar with Call of Cthulhu. I'm, I mean, I know what Call of Cthulhu is, but I've not played many Call of Cthulhu games. I've not played Delta Green, but I've played Knights Black Agents, which is a gumshoe-based system. I love gumshoe, by the way. It's a really, really fun system. Looking at a Knights Black Agents game, I could see that... You, you look at the eight steps and let's look at it. Let's put Knights Black Agents on one side and look at the eight steps. And you're planning your Knights Black Agents game. Which steps work and which ones don't? And there's only a couple that I think need any modification. Looking at the characters, yeah. Understanding the characters, understanding their motivations, understanding what their role is, what drive they have, what motivates them. That's all still really important in any RPG you're going to play. So the characters are really... So that... Step one, really important. You have the strong start. And again, any game you're running, you probably want to start off the game with a bang. You want to go in media res. You want to show the characters what the game is about. You want to drive them forward. So having a strong start, again, doesn't matter if you're playing Knights Black Agents or I presume Call of Cthulhu or Delta Green. What's the strong start that's bringing the characters into the story that's getting them started? That seems important whatever RPG you're going to play. What scenes might occur? Pretty much any RPG is going to have scenes. You're going to want to have an idea of what kind of scenes might happen, even if they don't all happen, even if they're not uh, linear set of scenes but they're actually a network set of scenes you can still keep track of like these are the scenes that might occur 
you want to be generally ready to switch to one of these scenes when they come up. Secrets and clues. Uh, adventures are driven by mystery. So your adventures are driven by mystery. Well, the uh, one thing that really helps with mystery is what are the secrets and clues the characters can discover that will unravel the mystery. And the secrets and clues section works really well. Again, whether you're doing a combat-focused D&D game or you're doing a, a game of investigation, Call of Cthulhu, a weird investigation game, you still want to know what those secrets are. In fact, you might put more energy into those secrets. Maybe you don't just do 10, maybe you do 20 because you don't know which ones they're going to find. You don't know where they're going to find them. But that idea of abstracting those really matter. So that so secrets and clues really work. NPCs, of course, that really works. Locations, fantastic locations. You're, you still have to have places where the scenes take place. And it's still important to make those scenes those locations interesting and unique and even if they're not fantasy still fantastic like a weird temples to the old gods right or a, a, a cool weapons factory or a vampire grotto you're still going to want to know what those locations are like and i think that that can be that can still be important the one step that i think could and, and so monsters could change a little bit instead of monsters it might be antagonists it might be villains Maybe it's still, maybe it's, it's, it's whoever the, you know, whoever's going against the characters and maybe those are just NPCs and maybe you don't need the monster section because you don't need to identify them. Maybe they don't have stat blocks the same way, but often they do. And I bet you like having a list of the kind of opponents that they're facing, probably not that unuseful treasure and rewards instead might be MacGuffins. So these might be the objects that matter in the game. It's the weird idol, or it's the secret plans that we're trying to steal, or it's the vampire's coffin that we're trying to destroy. What are the specific items that matter to the game and the adventure could be just as important, whether you're playing a D and D game or you're playing a, 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 a gumshoe game or anything like that. It might not be treasure in the sense that it's magic items that give you power to the character. It might instead be, what are the items? You can think of them the same way as locations, right? What are these physical items? The staff of Ra, the, the headpiece, the Ark of the Covenant, you know, these are objects that matter that you want to keep track of and be like, where are they? What, what do they mean? Where do they move to? And how do I make sure that the characters know that they have to go find these things in order for the game to progress? So I really think that if you look at the eight steps and modify them only slightly, they fit most RPGs. I think they work with most RPGs. There are some RPGs where the structure of the RPG just doesn't play the same way. The, the way the game plays doesn't play the same way. And those are ones where you either are going to eliminate a bunch of steps or, or come up with all new steps, or maybe you don't have any steps at all. But I think for Gumshoe, for the Gumshoe games I've seen, I, I bet you that the eight steps work pretty well for a gumshoe game with only slight differences in, in how you approach. But that's one of the things that I think makes the eight steps really powerful is that they, it does support. I'm, I'm very happy about how it transitioned from in-game play to online play and that you can still use the eight steps. That Boy, I was lucky, right? I'm lucky that that worked out. So I likewise think that it can transcend different different game systems as well and i know it has because i've used it i've used it for other game systems friends i want to thank you all for spending time with me to talk about all things in role-playing games if you like this show and you want more stuff like this please consider subscribing to the sly flourish newsletter where you'll get a free adventure generator pdf and a weekly rpg related email sent directly to your inbox you can also become a patron of sly flourish patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive material access to the sly flourish discord server the city of arches source book uncovered secrets 
Secrets 1 and 2, a bunch of adventures, all look at all kinds of early previews and things, and, and just, but generally just helping me out. We now have a new hero tier for patrons. If you want to really give back, if you feel like you're really getting a lot of value out of the things that I provide, you can join at the hero tier and really help support everything that I do. And finally, you can pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy DM's Workbook, and The Lazy DM's Companion. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.